Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Big, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is currently open for business. This is recorded in the desert. Thank you for being here. How are you today? My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California, as usual, and it is very nice to be with you. I'm feeling better. My influenza has left me. Thank God. Uh, Jeff Jackson is the guest today. His debut novel, Mira Corpora, is now available from $2 Radio, uh, a great independent press. And uh, this novel, I should add, uh, received a blurb from uh, none other than Don DeLillo. Why is that so hard to say? Don DeLillo. Uh, but, you know, such a thing seems both rare and promising. So I'm very glad to have Jeff here on the program. He and I are going to be talking in just a minute. Otherwise, uh, I do have some good news, uh, which some of you may already be aware of. Uh, this program last week was named uh, one of the 12 best storytelling podcasts uh, in the um, podosphere. <laughs> What do you call the podcast universe? You know, universe. 
anyway, BuzzFeed, you know that website, BuzzFeed? BuzzFeed named this program the number four best storytelling podcast in the world. <laughs> and I appreciate that. I really do. And, uh, you know, obviously I think it should be number one. But for now, uh, I will graciously accept number four. And, you know, the only reason I mention it, uh, you know, I mention it for a couple of reasons. First of all, you know, this is a list. And as anyone who spends time on the internet knows, lists tend to be popular. Somewhat maddeningly so. I hate them. <laughs> and yet I read them, which is the point. People read these things. Uh, and then, of course, you know, I'm always happy when other people makes uh, a good list. Because this helps generate interest in the show and, uh, grow, you know, grows the listenership and so on. But, uh, you know, not all lists are created equal. And this particular BuzzFeed list seemed uh, strong, unusually strong in its viralness. Which is to say it was widely read. Last I checked, you know, it had been liked like 1,500 times on Facebook and tweeted, you know, more than 100 times and so on and so forth. So it's a positive development. And in the aftermath of the listing, this program shot up to number two on the iTunes podcast chart in the literature category. And I'm not sure, you know, if that's coincidental or what. Uh, and I should also mention that I have no idea what that means. <laughs> but I'm not going to complain. It's a good thing, is it not? Number four in the world. And counting, which uh, which makes me wonder, you know, what really does move the needle? Does BuzzFeed really move the needle in the culture? Like, what would it take? What would it really take to get this show, uh, you know, into a higher media echelon? What would have to happen? Like, is there anything I can do or should do? To create that situation. Maybe maybe something uh, sensationalist. Maybe something uh, involving... Uh, nudity? I don't know. Or maybe I need to break some news. I think... Uh, yeah, that's what I think I need. I think I need like Stephen King to uh, be a guest on this program. And during the uh, course of that interview... I need him to come out as a closeted gay man on my show. It's the only way. Uh, and incidentally, uh, I did try to get J.K. Rowling to talk to me back when uh, her pseudon uh, pseudonymous, pseudonymous, is that a word? The book that she wrote under another name. Back when that was happening, I tried to get her on the program. Uh, but she has a very nice person or group of publicists who respond to her many media, uh, media inquiries with a very formal-sounding uh, form letter. So, uh, you know, if you guys have any ideas about what should be done to uh, make this program into an even uh, bigger worldwide media sensation, please feel free to leave me a voicemail message over at otherpeoplepod.com. Just click on Send Voicemail over at the right side of the page. And, of course, you can also email me at letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Uh, 
Uh, okay. So, uh, in other news, busy day today. I've been working all day. I just published an essay by DR Haney, uh, over at the nervous breakdown.com. It's 11,000 words, which uh, is long for the site and for most websites, but it's a hell of an essay called room 32. And is you know, it's about DR Haney's attempt to summon the ghost of the late Jim Morrison in a West Hollywood motel room. And I should also add that DR Haney has been a guest, uh, on this program. So uh, the point is you should read the essay. It's really good. And you can find it over at the nervous breakdown.com. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns, depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. My guest today is Jeff Jackson. His debut novel is called Mira Corpora. It is available now from $2 Radio, and I'm very pleased to have him here on the show. So uh, let's get to it. This here is Jeff Jackson, and his novel, once again, is called Mira Corpora. Uh, well, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'm sitting in uh, my office, which is in the front room. Uh, my house, um, it's an old house from like 1910, an old arts and crafts bungalow that's been redone a bunch of different times. And it looks out on the street, and it's a kind of gray, overcast day, but in a nice way. It's sort of like spritzing outside and kind of pleasant. Okay, so, so you've run, you've had, uh, you've written plays that have been staged in New York City. Um, you've got a novel coming out. I'm curious to know how you wound up in Charlotte. Um, uh, you know, like, how did you get there? Yeah, well, I lived in New York City for 13 years, and sometimes when I think back about how I ended up in Charlotte, it's sort of like a, it's like a body snatcher moment. I'm like, I try and recreate it, and it's hard to figure out how I did end up here. Um, part of it is that my wife and I had both lived in the city for a really, really long time, and it was just getting to the point it was so expensive, 
and we were doing so much work to pay the bills that I, I wasn't doing any writing, really, or I was just doing very, very little writing. And I sort of reached this crisis point where I felt like I could be a writer or I could be a New Yorker, but I couldn't be both. Yeah, how do writers? How do writers in New York do it? I don't understand. I mean, I live in Los Angeles, so what am I talking about? But I still feel like New York is even more expensive. I, it, yeah, I mean, New York just—it just feels so prohibitive. I mean, to me, the people who made it in New York were people who had um, a really cheap living space for a while and got a couple of really good breaks, either professionally with sort of like their day job that paid really well, or they're able to publish a couple of books and get a real sort of foothold and keep going that way. Um, and my wife and I had a couple of situations where we almost had some good breaks go our way, um, but they didn't develop. And if, they, if that doesn't happen for you, if you don't get like lucky pretty early on in New York in living there, it just becomes a grind, and it just sort of grinds you down. Dude, so, you're, 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 you're singing my song here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm I mean, like, it's I'm, tough. I'm slouching in my chair in Los Angeles right now. <laughs> um so, like, I really felt like, I mean, I really sort of had this sort of existential crisis where, like, really, I really need to make a change. Like, what is it I really want to do? Do I really want to, like, just stay in New York and grind it out? Or, you know, do I want to get out of the city? And um, so we knew my wife wanted to leave partially just for, like, a slower change of life. And for me, it was really about uh, dedicating myself more to writing. And we looked at a bunch of different places. Uh, we looked at Portland. We looked at Durham. We looked... Um, we looked some places in Virginia, and my sisters lived in Charlotte for a long time. We've always come down here and visited her, and it always sort of seemed like a city on the on the up and up. And there are a lot of like really interesting communities, and everything had a, a real sort of neighborhood feel. There are a lot of really interesting grassroots art arts things going on, and so it just sort of seemed like uh, it just sort of seemed like a good fit. Like okay. the cost of living was really low. It felt very friendly. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Okay, so you you had this crisis point where you're you're saying to yourself, I can either be a writer or I can be a New Yorker, and then you make the decision and you make the leap and you leave New York and you're in Charlotte. Has it helped? Has it been better? Like, yeah, what? I mean, like literally, I like three weeks after I moved here, a month after I moved here, I started writing um, the novel that became Miracorpora. Um, and it took me a long time to do it, but it was super helpful. I mean, it was super helpful both in terms of having breathing room and time to do it. And the other thing that I didn't really realize until I had been here for a little while was that New York sort of put so much static in my head that it was really hard to sort of figure out, like, what were my obsessions and what were sort of the obsessions of the people around me. Um, I'm one of those people who I'm really interested in music, I'm really interested in film, I'm really interested in theater, and I always sort of felt this compulsion to go out and like consume as much of it as possible. Okay, so wait, stop for a minute, because okay. you're, you're, you're registering with me here on a couple of fronts. <laughs> okay. Like, first of all, I find, I find like, you, you, you said the people around you, um, you couldn't tell if you were like excited about what they were excited about or if you were excited about what you were authentically yeah. interested in. I right. find I find that social media has that impact on me, where it's like there's all this noise about one thing, and all of a sudden I'll get all ginned up, and then I'll be like, "Wait a minute, do I even like this?" <laughs> well, I think that's starting to happen now. I mean, I think when I first moved to Charlotte like seven years ago, there was so much less social media um, that the first couple of years of that was really refreshing, and I was able to sort of dig in a little bit deeper to what I was actually interested in, and sort of like really figure out what I was honestly interested in. Um, what, yeah, I, what are you interested in? Do you know? <laughs> um, well, yeah, I, I mean, some of the 
stuff in the writing that sort of keeps reappearing is, um, I mean, a, a writing style that's more sort of visceral, that's more clipped, that's more visual, that has sort of an odd point of view to it. I keep writing a lot about um, funerals and trauma, <laughs> fun stuff. Um, <laughs> there seem to be certain images I keep being drawn toward. And before, I sort of had this idea when I lived in New York that to be a good writer, you needed to be like, you need to keep varying things up and you shouldn't repeat yourself. And I kind of realized that I was cutting off at the roots a lot of things I was interested in just because I felt like, well, I've done that, or I wrote that in a story, so I shouldn't repeat that, when really I needed to sort of work it out of my system. Okay, and so what about, like, you, you had this long period in New York City in your, uh, the formative years of your adult life, and now you're removed from that in a city that, you know, while it has its art scene and it has its, uh, its positives, it's not like a cultural hub uh, like, no. you know, in a, in a grand sense. So when you look back, do you think that you needed to be in New York or do you think that, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I know it obviously played a big role in it and was influential. Yeah, I mean, I do. I mean, I, you know, I do think, I do think I needed to be in New York when I was younger because it exposed me to so many great things that I couldn't have gotten any other way. Um, and that was really, really important, whether it was just going out and being able to hear like really great rock bands or really great free jazz musicians or being able to see like the Wooster group, um, and some really amazing theater that I just, you wouldn't get exposed to pretty much, you know, many other places in the country. I mean, those are the things that really sort of bent my head in a really important way. Um, and I'm really grateful to that. It just sort of like, it came to this point where it became sort of unhealthy. I sort of reached the tipping point. Um, were you doing, any, were, you, were you partying and like doing drugs and that sort of stuff or no? I mean, not as, not as much of that. Um, not as much of that. Uh, but part of it was also just going out and being social and hanging out at bars with people and going to shows with people and all that. And like, there's always in New York, I always felt like there was always someone on any given night doing something more interesting than what my own work was. And I really <laughs> needed to check it out. Right. You know, it was that sort of compulsion of like, well, I could stay home and work on this thing that I'm like, you know, not even sure if it's going anywhere. I'm beating my head against the wall. Or I could go see this amazing, you know, I could go see Cecil Taylor, who's only going to play once this year. And, oh, my God, he's 75. And I really better go see that tonight. Like, right, I'd, right. Be a, I'd, be a, I'd be a fool not to. But that sense of like, I'd be a fool not to check that out, like, for 365 days a year becomes basically you look back and you're like, oh, yeah, I haven't really done any work of my own. Okay, yeah, because like this is like I'm, I'm fascinated with cultural consumption, the, you know, the ingestion yeah. of uh, music, the ingestion of movies and television. And what I constantly feel about and books, you know, uh, obviously, yeah. but what I constantly feel about myself is that. I'm either like out in like left field, you know, watching things and reading things that like just aren't um, getting, I don't know, they don't place me in the conversation <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah. or I'm, or I'm, I'm just really slow and I consume at a much lower level and it like can sometimes make me feel a little bit insecure and like that might sound surprising to people listening or maybe it surprises you because like I'm obviously doing this show and. Um, I'm involved in the literary uh, community, you know, pretty heavily, but like, yeah, in a major way, right? I, I cannot keep up like, and, and I don't even know if I want to. And like, I sometimes wonder if like, do I not have enough like monom, you know, monomaniacal love for it the way that some people do. And I don't know if like, are, are you that way? Are you super obsessive? And have you read everything? And 
you know, do you have like a library of like 10,000 CDs that you have alphabetized and, you know, where do you fall? I mean, I have a, t- I mean, I have a ton of CDs and a ton of movies. Um, I have a ton of books on my shelves. I mean, a shameful percentage of which I have not read yet. Um, okay, good. That makes me feel better right there. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I'm like someone who loves to buy books and salt them away for later. Like, I'm like, I know there'll be an occasion when I want to read this or it just, this isn't quite the right time yet, but I see it on sale. So I'm going to buy it now. And, you know, it feels good to have it. I like having it. Yeah, I like having it too. Even if it's like four years later or seven years later, like I sort of feel like there will be a time for me in that book. I, you know, it's weird. I'm a little bit more like obsessive about digesting movies and music and wanting to be a little bit more part of that conversation, sort of the currency of that, than I am on books. Um, because maybe it just it takes me longer to read books, um, and maybe it's for me it's a little bit more of a profound experience usually. Well, um, I just wonder too, like there's this sense that like if everybody's reading something and I don't want to sound snooty or whatever, but I just feel like I have some sort of, I think inherent, uh, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Not revulsion. That's too strong. But like, I, I mistrust, like when everyone's reading one thing, I'm like, should I read that? Then I don't know. I yeah, feel- no, I, no, I had the same, I'm the same way. And there are definitely some books like. Um, I'm almost like embarrassed to say, like the like the corrections by Jonathan Franzen. Like it came out, everyone was reading it. And I'm just, like, you know what? Was, I'm like, I'm going to wait five years and see if people are still talking about it. <laughs> I was just going to say Franzen when you like right when you started to say, <laughs> because I've read I've read his essays, but like I haven't read Freedom or the Corrections. And like every time he publishes one of these essays that like pisses off everybody on my Twitter feed mm-hmm. uh, in the literary community. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, okay, I should feel angry about this. And then I like read the essay and I'm just like, whatever, dude. It's just as I, I cannot get invested emotionally in that. And I, I wonder about myself for that reason. Is that good? Is that bad? Like, I kind of, I mean, being somewhat similar, I tend to think it's good. I tend to think there's certain things, like if you're not, I guess I sort of trust there, there are certain things I'm sort of magnetically drawn toward and that's good. And I should go with that. But if there's certain things that everyone's reading and everyone's talking about, and I'm sort of indifferent about it especially with books, like I'm willing to let it ride for a while and just sort of see like, okay, like, is this still sound like really interesting, you know, are people still really jazzed about this four or five years from now? Uh, Because a lot of that stuff is kind of faddish and it goes away. Well, yeah. And I feel like, you know, and and like, this is something we can tie in music here and particularly music um, when you're a young person, because I think it's the most um, defined example of how art can uh, serve the purpose of being social currency. Like I remember being yeah. like in my early twenties and which shows you went to and which bands you liked were like total signifiers. And it was a way of communicating with your friends and like people, you know, people that you were introduced to and there was like a status attached to it. And it was this weird period in my life that wasn't that long, but like it really stands out to me. And I think that maybe there's some of that in reading the book of the moment or having some sort of opinion on what Jonathan Franzen says that like inserts you into, you know, some sort of cultural conversation that can potentially enhance your own status. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And I think, I think a lot of that has come out. My sense of it is like a lot of that's come out more with social media because when I was younger, like definitely music was like, it, it absolutely like exactly like you said, it was such an important thing. You sort of identified myself with these bands that I loved um, and would go see, and it, it really, it was really wrapped up um, with my identity in a big way. But 
I was never really part of the literary scene when I was younger in New York. I mean, I would go to some readings and things like that, but my sense is, um, and my sense is that now that people in their 20s and their, and their early 30s, that there is much more of a scene, partially because of social media, to plug into and to try and feel current with. Yeah, I mean, no doubt about it. And it's like this, and it's also really weird because it's like a, um, uh, what's the word? Like a gestalt, like a distant experience that somehow uh, feels pretty accurate. Like you're reading these tweets from people you don't know other than like this small photo. And then like you get this kind of composite, uh, you know, feeling about what's going on. And it's usually fairly straight on in terms of what's being talked about. You know, you can follow like, a representative sample of writers out there and get a sense for which books are buzzworthy. I mean, I, I've had that experience. It's very easy to pick out, you know, people tend to chatter and it's kind of fun to at least attempt to trace it to its origins. Yeah, no, no, that's true. That's true. And there, yeah, there definitely is that. And I, I sort of wonder, I sort of wonder how that happened, like pre-social media, like in this, you know, how that was, how that, how that sort of process has changed. Well, I think there's or, or maybe it hasn't that much. I don't think it has in a defined way for from the publishing end. I think that there are some publishers who are savvier than others, and I think they're obviously really fascinated with the potentials of social media. But you know, I think pre-social media, they didn't really even know who was reading. You know, like they knew they knew books were selling, but like it was like, who is it? And occasionally, you know, you see somebody on the subway reading, or you hear something, or you know, whatever. But otherwise, it's reviews, and then it's like maybe people who come to readings, but. Um, I don't think that publish that the publishing industry, based on what I know, has really dug in and figured out a way to do like comprehensive market research using the internet and social media. And you know that's a big that's a big ball of yarn to untangle. But there's got to be something there, you know, that could give them like real metrics and instruction. I think anyway. I think so too. I mean, I used to work in publishing for a number of years before I sort of left to get my MFA, and I, I sort of felt like I needed to make a break with um, the sort of publishing career track. But I always felt like the publishing industry was so sort of it was just so sort of backward in how they approached marketing, um, and so sort of backward in terms of. I remember there was this initiative at one point they were trying to get a bunch of publishers together to do a campaign like the sort of Got Milk campaign or the uh, the beef campaign, just sort of like this basic campaign to get people to be like, hey, you know, you should read, you know, like a big reading campaign nationwide that all these publishers would pay into. And like people were so petty and didn't even want to do it. They said, like, we don't see the value in this. Wow. Well, I'm like, all I'm thinking of right now is that like really now that like, you know, distribution is moot, like really the, the only job of publishers is marketing, like or, or like the most critical job really. Um, beyond, I guess, I mean, I shouldn't say that because you obviously have to publish well and that's always going to be the principal activity. But, you know, it, beyond that, it's like you got to find a way to let people know that things exist. And that's a big challenge with this much static, you know, in the in the world, both online and elsewhere. It is a big challenge. I feel like, I mean, I did one of the things I've done here in Charlotte is I organized this uh, film festival. I did seven different film festivals here. Um and a lot of the stuff that I was showing was more sort of, it was more sort of arty stuff. It was, you know, Ozu movies or really old Kurosawa movies or um, rare, rare French New Wave stuff. And my feeling was always like, 
you know, I would pick something I thought people would like and something I was really passionate about, and then I'd figure out how to market it instead of like just picking a movie that I thought everyone would like. I sort of felt like, and I sort of feel like it's the publisher's job to take something that's really, really good and figure out how to market it. But it seems the process is really asked backwards. And in a lot of cases, they're looking for something, a book that already fits a slot that they're thinking of. Well, see, it's becoming more and more like the movie industry where it's like, yeah. you know, the, the blockbuster model or whatever. And I don't think that, you know, that doesn't do any favors to the kinds of books that I like. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no, me neither. The types of art I like in general. And, and to be honest, I really don't think, or I guess like the movies you can say like, well, they are making a lot of money at it theoretically, but I don't really think it's doing a service to the readers and to sort of new readers coming up. I feel like if you go to Barnes & Noble and you're like some 20-year-old, you're basically being served like, there are like two flavors for you there. Right. Uh, and there's so many books that I feel like younger people would be really excited about and really passionate about that are not, that are not, that they, they basically would have to already be in the know to know where to get these books. Right. And instead they're being turned off, instead they're going toward TV shows, they're going toward movies, they're going toward video games, and just being like, you know, reading is kind of bullshit. I see. They need to listen to this show. That's that's what needs to happen. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the things. Absolutely. So, uh, what did you? You said you worked in publishing. In what capacity? I worked. I worked for a couple of nonfiction publishers, um, doing rights, doing foreign rights, and then I worked um, for Wait, a couple do, of do years. You have a, do you have a law degree? No. No. Oh, okay. I don't. Okay. Okay. I thought no, no, maybe no. I thought maybe you had to have one in order in order to. Like... Oh no no you I, you barely you barely needed anything to do that job. <laughs> um, so um, I mean I was interested I did some permissions and a little bit of copyright stuff but it was really uh, you were just sort of following these boilerplate sort of instructions. Okay. Um, and then I, I worked as an agent uh, at ICM for a couple of years. Oh, you did. Okay. That's how was and that experience? It was a really, you know, in a lot of ways, it was a really, really good experience. I mean, I was, I got to, I was mostly sort of placing short stories for people and doing audio rights, and um, I had, I had a few small clients, but it was really interesting to sort of see, to sort of send short stories out for established writers and sort of see what got accepted and what didn't. Okay, so and it was really. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, like, I was going to tie it back into, like, what you were saying about taste. I realized that, like, my taste was so off. Like, what I thought was, like, a really amazing story. Like, had a, you know, there's this Joy Williams story that I had. I'm like, this is a really incredible story. And, like, no one would take it. Jesus. No one would take it. And there'd be some other story that would come across my desk. I'd be like, this is highly mediocre, but I was told to send it to Harper, so I will. And they would accept it. Well, see, I mean, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, I guess, but... Um, did you ever have, uh, like who else were you placing stories for? I'm curious about that process. Like you would get stories from a publisher. Uh, no, I would guess it'd be from our client. It'd be from our clients. Okay. So, so, and, it, and it sort of depended who had a book at the time going on or like I placed a lot of stories. Uh, I tried to place stories by David Gates. Um, and in a lot of cases people wouldn't take the stories and then his collection of stories came out and was nominated for the national book award. And I think the Pulitzer too. And then I would have these um, people from magazines calling me, being like, why didn't you offer me these stories? I'd be like, well, you want, you want me to send you the rejection emails back? Because I, I have those. Uh, but I did some, some, a little bit with Stephen Milhauser, a little bit with Joy Williams, um, this woman, Julia Slavin, who's really, really talented. Um, uh, J. Robert Lennon was another one. Sure. Yeah, he's been on this show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, was, uh, he had some really good stuff. He was, uh, he was just sort of starting up at that time. Wow. Okay. So did you learn anything, um, aside from, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, these magazines, uh, often have 
tastes that vary widely, you know, wildly from yours. Did you learn anything else that was really instructive to you? Yeah, other than learning my tastes were very uncommercial, uh, <laughs> out of step with the uh, commercial landscape. Right. I mean, I think probably the biggest thing I learned was that it was a really great job and it was really great to be working with all these really creative people. Um, but I realized at the end of the day that um, that wasn't good enough, that working this job, with, you know, this really creative publishing job with these really exciting people, it still wasn't really what I wanted to do, which was to write my own stuff. Right. And it was a real sort of soul-searching moment of, you know, this is a good career track. I could really keep going with this. It's really fun. But at the end of the day, I had to be honest with myself that it wasn't, it just wasn't what I wanted to do. And it was sort of this case of close enough isn't good enough. Um, and it was, it was tough. Um, but that was a really, it was a good lesson to learn because I realized like if this job wasn't satisfying enough, there was no other job in publishing that was going to be. Your wife, your wife, were you with your wife at the time? Uh, we were dating at the time. Was but... she like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? <laughs> <laughs> no, she was actually, she was actually really encouraging. She was really encouraging. She's, um, she's someone who's walked out on several jobs in spectacular fashion. Um, so she's, um, she's got she's no actually... room to talk. She, well, she's a good role model in that way, actually. She's sure. a good role model in terms of like knowing when you need to leave something, knowing when something's a toxic environment, when you need to put up with it, and when like it's okay to burn a bridge, maybe. Right. That's an you interesting, know, like, you know, that's an interesting um, idea. You know, like, when is it? Like, when is it the right time to just kind of like eat crow and keep your mouth shut and endure? And when's the moment when it's like, okay, I'm out? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, and it's a tough thing to it's a tough thing to figure out. I mean, I think some people know that more instinctually than others. I'm the sort of person who had to sort of had to, uh, took me a while to piece that together. Uh, okay. So at this point you, you, you leave the job at ICM. Is this when you started to write plays or were you already writing here and there along the way? Like when did I was already, I was already working on theater stuff at that time. And I think that also gave me a little bit more, um, encouragement that I could do this. Um, that I've been right. That um, one of the plays we had done when I was at ICM got a really, really great review in the New York Times, and good things were sort of happening around um, around the theater company. And I sort of felt like, okay, I can do this. And I had applied to NYU to grad school, sort of not just sort of. I, it's like I'll just put the application out there and see what happens. And I got in, and I sort of felt like, well, this is a perfect thing. Like. I felt like I needed grad school was important to me, not because it was important to go to grad school, but because I needed a break, a definitive break from a career track job. Well, yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. That's what I always uh, say about MFAs is that they're, that they're time. You know, it's like a, yeah. it's a place to hide out with other crazy people and do your work. You know, <laughs> like, and I also like I needed to detrack myself too. I needed to get off of that career track because it was so tempting to stay on it. Right. I needed to have something. I couldn't like work if you know I couldn't like work part time as an agent and do the MFA like it had to be for me like a more definitive like psychic break. Um, so and and the fact that theater stuff had some energy and momentum behind it was was really really helpful. Okay, so what about like the was it called Botanica the play that uh, Barishnikov like gave you space for? Like I, mm -hmm. read, yeah. I read about that. That's that must have been like kind of a heady experience, right? Yeah, it was it was it was wonderful. It was really uh, it was really wonderful. The space there we got we had a uh, a couple of month residency at the Barishnikov Center. I came up for about three weeks of that. Um, 
and it was, it was a beautiful space. Uh, one day we got, someone came in and said, oh, it's all right, uh, you know, Misha's going to come in and sit in and, on rehearsal. And we were like, you know, we're trying not to be starstruck. And he came in with Jessica Lang and sat there for like 45 minutes and watched it and had some really nice comments afterwards. And he really likes really extreme weird stuff, um, really conceptual work. And so he was really, he was very encouraging. Well, did you talk, I guess I, t- I take it you spoke with him? I got to speak with him a little bit, yeah. I got to speak with him a little bit. He was, you know, sort of asking questions about where we were going with the piece and the technical things we were doing, what, you know, how some of the actors were sort of relating to the plants. Uh, the play is sort of set in this, like, terrarium-like environment, and in the finished version, we had, like, 400 live plants on stage. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah it, was, it, was really, it was really intense, and we actually, um, it didn't quite have enough of, like, the dirt smell, the fresh dirt smell we wanted, so we actually bought... Like I forget how many pounds, like two hundred pounds of chicken shit, and put it in, um, put it in these uh, containers and wet them and put it under the risers, so you would really smell that sort of earthy smell. Um, so yeah, it was a really, it was a, it was a cool piece in terms of like the, the, you know, you were really as an audience member, sort of really immersed um, in the environment, and so, it was really. Wait a minute, you, you said you put chicken shit under the seats. Am I... yeah, it was under the riser, so like you couldn't see the chicken shit, <laughs> but, still. but you could smell it. We wet it so you could really smell it, you know? <laughs> and but, but what you thought you were smelling was all the plants around you and not realizing you were smelling the wetted chicken shit. Oh, my God. So this is, <laughs> so this is really out there. I like this. Yeah. I mean, the thing we're working on right now is like even more out there. It's, um, it's this adaptation of the ancient Chinese novel, The Dream of the Red Chamber, um, and it's this 2,000-page novel, and we're doing this durational eight-hour piece for a sleeping audience. So, so it's literally, we have beds, like 40 beds, and you come in, and you're welcome to lie down and nap while the show is sort of slowly happening around you like a uh, perfume. Did you do a lot of drugs in your life? <laughs> no comment. No comment. Okay. So do you have a sense, because I know you had kind of an unconventional expatriated childhood too. So uh, yes. do you feel like when you, when you think about your tastes and, you know, your uh, like artistic leanings and like your love for the uh, strange or esoteric or whatever, like, can you uh, figure, you know, figure out how that came to be? You know, can you look at, I mean, I do think, I do think the expatriate thing is right on. Um, I grew up in Aruba for like basically the first eight years of my life. And I think being outside of the U S being outside of pop culture, I mean, there was literally, there was one television channel. It would be on from like 4 PM to 10 PM. And they would show like reruns of old cartoons from world war two. So I was like learning to like save my scrap metal and, you know, stuff like that as a kid. <laughs> um, but there was something about being away from the U.S. that um, being away from U.S. culture that I think when I re-entered it, when we moved to Miami, um, it just gave me a, a totally different perspective on things. Well, I don't a, think I, Aruba's I, tiny, right? It's like a tiny little island. It's, it's this tiny desert island, and there was it's a huge tourist uh, destination now. But when I lived there, there was no tourism. There were like three when we left. There were like three hotels. I mean, now I think there's literally fifty like Hyatt-sized hotels there. But when we left, there were only three, and it's this sort of Dutch colony, and people speak this mix of English, Dutch, Spanish, and this native language called Papimento, uh, which actually Gabriel Garcia Marquez's um, grandmother spoke, and Papimento is referenced in his novels a number of times. Um, but it's only spoken on like four islands, Papimento. 
Interesting. Okay, so you speak? Do you speak Dutch? No, although my parents tried to get me to learn Dutch. Um, there, I was picking up Spanish like naturally. Um, you know, when I was like four, three or four, I could like count to twenty in Spanish. I knew all my colors. I had like this vocabulary. And rather than send me to like an immersion preschool. Um, in Spanish, they decided a Dutch immersion preschool would be so much more useful. Um, and I have like, really vivid memories of this woman in this frumpy brown dress, like yelling at me in Dutch um, and just like, you know, bursting into tears. And, I, you know, Dutch is, I mean, it makes German sound pretty. I, <laughs> like, I love you in Dutch sounds like I'm going to skull fuck you. You know, it's so intimidating and awful, and especially for like a child who can't speak any of it. So why were you there? Like what, eight years? You, and you, it was obviously your, uh, your parents' work or something? Yeah, my, my, father, my father worked um, for Exxon at the time, and Aruba is really close to Venezuela. And so there's a large oil refinery in Aruba. And during World War II, it was the largest oil refinery in the world. And so they would take the oil from Venezuela, and it would come over to Aruba to be refined. Um, and so it's interesting that, like, even though like that, that plant and that refinery did a lot of sort of ecological damage in a small area, when I go back to Aruba now and see it, tourism has done so much worse damage. Sure. Well, just um, people, the more people. <laughs> the yeah, more. the more people, the more it, it's just, I mean, it was really like there's this very small concentration of like where Aruba was destroyed and the rest of it was like really pristine and wild and really strange. Okay, so what was like, yeah, I was going to ask you, like what was your childhood like? You're living on this like essentially... Uh, deserted desert island. Uh, yeah, I mean, it has, Aruba has, like, beautiful beaches, but, like, inside it's kind of like Arizona, basically. Okay. I mean, it has, like, these mountains. There's lots of cactus. It's totally arid. Were you living um, on the coast or were you living up in the hills or whatever? We were living, I mean, it's it's fairly narrow island. Um, we were living near the coast. Like, you could walk down to the beach. Okay. Um, That's good. I'm, I, I don't want you to be living in, like, the, the Arizona part. <laughs> No, no, but there were, I mean, there were, like, really odd things there. Like, there were, like, these golf courses that, like, barely had any grass on them, and you'd be walking along as a child, and, like, goats would be grazing and might come and, like, try and eat your shirt while you're walking on this golf course. And there was this crazy sort of, there was this um, Chinese village that was there that was walled in where they grew these vegetables for the two Chinese restaurants on the island, and it was this real sort of, but it was in the middle of this, like, coral area where nothing was growing and yet they had found this way to irrigate this land and make it really sort of rich. There was another area called the shark feeding ground where people would, it was rumored that dead bodies were thrown there, but people would go and fish for sharks and they would throw these huge hunks of meat um, off the cliffs and tie them to their cars. And when they would get a bite, they'd back up their cars and try and pull the sharks over the cliff, you know, using their cars. Oh my God. Did you ever see someone catch one? Uh, We saw someone's car almost get pulled in. By what I mean, like, of, they got something on the other end, and they started up their car and tried to back it up, and they weren't able to, and they weren't able to move, and then their car started, even though they're hitting, you know, reverse as hard as they can, started to be moved toward the cliff. Oh, my God. And they had to cut the, they had to cut the line. So, what kind of sharks are off the coast of Aruba? Forgive me for not... I don't know, actually, but apparently some big ones. I mean, this is an area where the water was super, super deep. There's a lot of areas where the water is pretty mild and not very, you know, not very deep. And it's not, it's only that one part of the island that's rumored to be shark infested. So, uh, like, like, how big of an expatriate community was there? Like, do you remember this time in your life as being, like, idyllic, or was it sort of weird? Did you travel a lot internationally to get off the island and, like... 
you know, just get, I mean, just to live on that small of a piece of land has to, after a while, make you a little nuts, right? I think it made my parents nuts. Um, I was, I don't know. I mean, I was young enough. I didn't really know any better. I mean, there was a, a reasonably large expatriate community. There's an international school I went to. Um, some of the kids whose parents worked at the hotels or worked in some of the cities would send their kids to the international school. It was weird because a lot of the kids, like even if like they came from Canada or Scandinavia or Germany or Portugal or wherever, like there's something about the families and something about the kids where they were more expatriates than they were their own nationality. And it used to be up until I was into high school, I used to be able to tell like when someone was an expatriate like really, really quickly. What was, sort of what was I sort it? of lost that ability now. Well, what's what's the defining characteristic, or just is it just some sort of like right. six? There's some or... there's some way that you carry yourself in the world. There's some like sense of slight detachment. Um, it's hard because I can't really identify it anymore. If someone tells me that they grew up as an expatriate, I might be like, oh, okay, yeah, I can kind of see that now. But like I used to be able to like really within meeting someone quickly, I could sort of have a sense of have a sense of that. So when you moved, um, the, when you moved to, and so your, your father worked for Exxon, do you have any artists in the family? Is your mother a writer or anything like that? No, no artists in the family, nothing at all. Okay. So you come to the mainland after your first eight years being on this island and suddenly you're uh, in a, you know, in the United States and in a much bigger area. Um, like what's the adjustment like? And do you think that you know, being like, like having that sense of detachment or that kind of like outsiderish feeling about uh, yourself, like that's that seems to jibe with being a writer. Like, do you think that's how you were formed as an artist because of that experience? I think I, I think partially. Yeah, I mean, I think it has to do a lot with sort of the sensibility, um, the sort of outsider sensibility. I mean, I was drawing like from age three. I was like constantly drawing. I was constantly. I was really interested. I wasn't interested in books. I was interested in comic books. Um, but I, I think I sort of like there was something innate in there already that I think being in Aruba sort of helped to cultivate and coming and then coming to the States and being a little bit of an outsider, I think maybe sort of refined that a little bit more. I think part of the psychology that sort of came out of it, too, is like I realized that like a lot of the a lot of the things I'm interested in tend to be viewed as fringe by other people, but like I just psychologically can't view them that way. Like they really feel like well, like everyone would like them. Like you know, like everyone should read Thomas Bernhard. Like why wouldn't that be like a top ten bestseller? Like I don't. There's something like fundamentally about like the art I like. I sort of feel like well, everyone could like it. I there's this uh, film uh, theater director Richard Foreman, and his motto is elite art for the masses. And that, like, really resonates with me, this idea that, like, you should be able to do something that's really refined and exceptional that, like, everyone likes. Well, how do you get there, though? Because that, I, mean, I, I, I totally agree. That's a really um, worthy goal, but it's hard to achieve. Like, do you, do you have any kind of insight into what constitutes uh, that experience? Like, how do, you, how do you get there? I mean, I think, I suspect not being there myself, I suspect that I suspect that part of it is not closing off your options, is not sort of buying into sort of what you need to do to make your work popular and what you need to do to make your work artistically valid and exceptional. Okay, and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw in a thought because I just spoke with uh, Curtis Sittenfeld the other day, I think on the you know, one of the pre most recent previous episodes. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about just having conscious awareness of your reader. 
like like being aware of the fact that you are trying to communicate with people. And, yeah, I think yeah, go on. Well, I was just going to say because like even if you are operating with some sort of um high artistic ordeal, you're trying to create elite art. I think sometimes people can get wrapped up in process or can get too can can be too inwardly turned and can forget about the fact that the uh there's a communication happening, you know, and that you have to make sure that you don't wind up excluding uh, people? Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. I think communication is like a really good way to say it. And I think there's a way to communicate without dumbing down in any way, shape, or form. There's a way to communicate that makes your art better, not lesser. And actually, I had an experience where I, writing this, writing Mira Corpora, it took me, it took me five years, and I actually wrote an entirely different version of the book at one point. And, I, and this different version of the book, which just fundamentally didn't work, but I was having trouble accepting that. I was getting all these comments back from people that wasn't working. And I was talking to Dennis Cooper, um, who I know a little bit. And I really went to Dennis because I wanted him to like pat me on the back and be like, yeah, fuck everyone else. Like, you know, you're right. Um, you should just do the art you want to do. And Dennis, it was a real wake up call. He said, you know, he said to me, he said, you really need to listen to what people are saying to you. And he said, you really need to keep the reader's pleasure in mind. He said, you really, if you're asking the reader to do a lot of work, you have to make sure that it's worth it for them. You have to know, you know how to seduce the reader into wanting to do the work you need them to do. And it's, he said, it sounds like you haven't done that. And so what happened? Well, it was really great because I really respect Dennis's work a huge amount. And I really, you know, and some of his books are, you know, his books are certainly not, I think his books do a great job of communicating to the reader really well. But they're they're a really purified vision at the same time. Right. I was going to say his so, work his work is not is challenging. You know. Yeah, his work is challenging. His work is challenging, but it does. I feel like as a reader, it makes me want to do the work I need to do to get, you know, to get out of the books what Dennis what the you know what the books are trying to communicate. Okay. So, um, but like, okay, because this is an interesting um, crossroads where you're trying to create elite art for the masses, which would. Which would seem to indicate that your goal um, as a writer of fiction or, or one of your goals would be to write a book that is, uh, you know, elite, whatever. It's high art, but it also finds, you know, millions of readers. That would be the ideal scenario. Um, I, I, I'm trying, like, at what point do you have to say to yourself, well, uh, maybe my work is never going to be for millions of people? Like, do you believe that about yourself? Like, I have in me stories that can function in both capacities or do you think like you know hopefully that happens but deep down you know i'm just a weirdo <laughs> i guess no i mean there's some part of me that feels like yeah like everyone everyone could like this um I, there's some part of me that can't give that up i mean i run one of the things i've been doing for the past six years is running this blog that's dedicated to free jazz and i really feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of jazz that if people just heard like the right jazz, like they'd be really turned on to it. So what's, um, the, what's the site? It's called Destination Out, destination-out.com. Okay. Um, and I really, you know, and I'm, we're sort of, I run it with, uh, with a friend and we're sort of, you know, evangelical about the music. Like this isn't difficult music. This isn't like eating your vegetables. This is, this is fun. The problem is like the traditional jazz is really boring. And I guess I feel that way a little bit about literature. I feel like a lot of the stuff that's like, on the bestseller list or like the sort of like literary fiction, you know, that's like respectable, but like when you read it, like really boring, like that's the problem. Like that's the stuff that's killing things. There's a lot of stuff that's on smaller presses that I'm like, if someone really got behind this, 
this could be so much more popular and this could like really excite people and get them. This is the sort of book you'd want to press on a friend. This is the sort of book that could actually make someone a reader or make someone want to read more as opposed to this stuff that's so much more mainstream and respectable, but ultimately dull and sort of um, soul not crushing, but soul uh, minimizing. And so what do, you, like, what do you mean? Like, can you point out a book that you think like falls into that category? Oh, um, well, I'm trying now, of course, like things like disappear from disappear from my mind. I mean, there are a lot of books that like, instead of buying them, like I'll check them out of the library and like read a couple of chapters and see if they grab me. And they just, you know, and they just don't. Well, do you, don't. Do, you, do you think that like, cause like I go through this as well, you know, where I'm like, and we talked about this earlier where it's like, everyone's chattering about this. And I find myself, you know, at best, like mildly interested only because everyone's chattering about it. Not because it actually <laughs> feels authentically interesting to me, but you know, is it possible that like, you know, you shouldn't argue with, the math, you know, if this many people are reading this thing and enjoying it, then there's got to be something redeemable in it. And who am I to say that it's dull? Do you know what I'm saying? Maybe it's dull for me, but that just could be because my taste is just weird. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally know what you're saying. And there are, you know, there are definitely some things where I feel like, okay, that's just my taste. And I just don't get it. I mean, for instance, like um, Pedro Almodovar's movies, like, like I get why people really like them and I get why they're like reasonably popular as far as foreign films go. But they're just kind of like not really for me, you know? Right. Or there are other movies where I see, um, and I'm just like, this is this is terrible. How could anyone? How could anyone like this? Um, like I just don't understand. Like I just I don't even understand how people could be entertained by it. I, I feel that of, way. I feel that way about TV oftentimes too. Like these shows that get these ratings, I'm like, what in the world is happening out there? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of them are just so kind of. Yeah, just dull, just just dull. Um, I mean, sort of getting back to your question, like I, I mean, I hope that I have, I hope that I have in me something that's both really good and, you know, could reach a, you know, reach a number of people. Like I, um, yeah, I really, I really hope so. But there's also a certain point, like there's a certain point with this book, and there's a certain point in sort of all the all the stuff I've worked on where I reach from just like I just want it to work. And whatever that means, like, that's fine. And I sort of like whatever lofty goals and ambitions I had for it sort of get folded up. And I just want it to work under the terms that it can work under. And I'm, then I'm, you know, then I have to be satisfied with that. Well, yeah, and I think that's wise because, you know, there's really no way to game the system. Like, there are books out there. I mean, any book that really takes off, I'm sure there's, you know, behind that book, an author who is most likely really surprised and just like pleasantly surprised. <laughs> Um, but you can't like sit down and be like, okay, this is going to be the one that is elite art for the masses and it's going to, it's going to work. Like you just can't predict it. And I don't think, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you know, it's like, I, I don't think there's anybody who sits down to write a novel who somewhere in their brain isn't thinking like, I'm going to connect with a lot of people, but there's just, you have to be willing to connect with like uh, 175 <laughs> yeah or less sometimes yeah. you know and that's and that no and that's to and i think that's totally fine i mean i think it's ultimately for me it's more it's more important to make something that i think is good that i feel like communicates to whoever it's going to communicate to and it works on its own terms like that's the most important thing i mean whatever reaches the masses is ultimately 
beyond the artist's control. There's so many things in terms of marketing, in terms of publicity that, you know, that, that you, that you don't have any say over. Um, but I like the, I guess philosophically, I like the idea that you're not closing yourself off to, to you're not automatically sort of ghettoizing yourself. Right. Right. You know, exactly. I, I mean, that, that's sort of the more important thing. It's like, you're, you know, the idea that, um, that you want the work to make sure that it does communicate, that it, it can reach that reader, even if that's only a hundred, you know, whether that's 175,000 or 175 people that it's, reaching that reader, doing that communication work. And, um, yeah, I, I think that, I mean, that's the most, that's the most important thing. So, uh, just to get back a little bit to your biography, like you're back in the States, I'm curious to know, like in high school, like, were you super book nerdy or were you like, uh, kind of like a, you know, pretty social guy, athlete, et cetera. And then like the, the book stuff happened later and the, the artistic leanings expressed themselves more fully later or I mean, the artistic stuff definitely came later on. I mean, I wasn't a big book reader until almost until sort of the end of high school, beginning of college, where I had like some people help turn me on to some some books that I really liked because a lot of the stuff that had been assigned, um, I wasn't, you know, it was just not it was just not exciting to me. Um, I mean, other people were really excited by reading Cry the Beloved Country or Tess of the Gerbervilles, but it wasn't. It wasn't for me uh, at that time. So, what was for you? Like, what, like, what book sort of hit, turned the light on, or what books? Um, reading, uh, I mean, reading Invisible Man was a really was a really big one for me. Didn't that just get uh, banned in a county in North Carolina? Yeah, it did. It did. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Coincidentally or not so coincidentally, yeah. I mean, ugh, it did. Yeah, they claimed it had no literary value and. It's pretty clear they hadn't actually read the book. Yeah, which, which I'm is, not sure if that's better or worse. You know, morons. Yeah, total morons. So, Invisible uh, Man. What else? Invisible Man. Some like really early Hemingway, like in our time. Um, like that stuff was really, really sort of visceral. That um, that really grabbed me. Um, some like the graphic novels that came out, like Watchmen, some of the Alan Moore stuff, sort of that was more literary, sort of got me pointed. In the direction, I found uh, the names by Don DeLillo really early on and was really lucky to stumble across that. Okay, so let me ask you about DeLillo because your book, uh, your debut novel has a blurb from Don DeLillo, which is like impossible. Like, how did you get a blurb from Don DeLillo? Yeah, it was crazy. I was like crazy lucky. Um, so an old uh, literary professor of mine, um, I, sent him, I sent him the book when it was a manuscript and he really loved the book, and um, it turned out that he's friends with DeLillo. And he asked, he called me up and asked if I would mind if he sent uh, if he sent a chunk of it to DeLillo. <laughs> and of course, I was like, you know, mind? I'll like chop off my pinky and mail it to you if I have to do that, you know. And he did, and I, I really, honestly, like, I didn't expect to hear anything. Um, and like two weeks later, I got this handwritten postcard in the mail from Don DeLillo saying how much he enjoyed the book. Is it now like framed and like mounted on the ceiling? Uh, yeah, it, it, it is. It's, it's, uh, it's framed in plastic. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now, actually. Um, what did he say? What did he like? Read it to us. It, it, it's, I mean, it's, uh, it's, basically the, it's basically the blurb. It's, I mean, Delillo writes, I mean, even his, even his handwritten postcards are like these exquisite, you know, exquisitely written things. He said, you know, my friend Frank um, sent me a chapter of your, sent a chapter of uh, your novel in my direction. He said, it's fine work and it's manic pacing and it's summoning of certain cultural emblems, present tense with a vengeance. 
says, I hope the book finds the serious readers who are out there waiting for this kind of fiction to hit them in the face. <laughs> I love that. It's like a violent, it's slightly violent, but um, it's a great blurb. You know, you must have. Yeah, and, so, and so you get that in the mail and do you think And I joke? literally had to walk around the block like five or six times before it even seemed real, you know. Um, it was like this thing that had like arrived out of a dream or something. What kind of po- uh, what's on the postcard? Is it like a postcard of like the the Jersey Shore or like? No, no, all the po- so the little I feel weird like talk- it's it's a uh, the back is a map of the New York subway. Okay, okay, and I don't um, mean I don't mean to yeah I, don't, I feel like maybe like we shouldn't be prying into like the private nature of Don DeLillo's postcard writing, but it's so fascinating because he doesn't do a lot of blurbs, if any, hardly, you know. And yeah, I mean, according to according to my friend who knows him, he's apparently not a guy who likes a lot of stuff. And when I got the postcard, I, I told my old professor Frank about this, and he was like, he's like, you should really, he's like, he's like, you don't understand, you should be really happy. He says because DeLillo really, he's not impressed by much and doesn't like a lot of things, and you know, he wouldn't he wouldn't write you a postcard out of politeness. Well, there you go. You know? He's so a kindred, was, kindred, kindred spirit. I like the. I like knowing that Don DeLillo doesn't like a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he also apparently doesn't. Well, to the, uh, the end of the gossip here, um, he writes postcards because he doesn't have email, um, or a computer, or a cell phone. See, that's why he's. So when you it. get when you get things from Don DeLillo, it's a postcard or like a little typed up note, and that's that's that. Yeah, I mean, I've. I feel like it's almost like. Uh, I, it's almost overdone on this show anyway, but like I am so tempted to junk it all. Like I, I, I hear about people who live like that without a cell phone and without a computer and without the internet, and it must be just blissful <laughs> in some ways anyway, you know? Like, yeah, I think I think in a lot of ways. I've heard more and more about people going like on internet fasts. Oh, sure. You know, yeah. doing it for like one week or two weeks or three weeks. And well, I wonder if that's going to become more and more of a trend. Well, it's not, and you know, I think it's like specific to, and I'm thinking of it specifically in the context of the writing life and the reading life, because, um, you know, it's just, it, I just think that not to be, and I don't think there's like one rule for everybody. So I don't want to get like a bunch of emails from people who think I'm nuts, but I just think that like writing long form fiction in particular um, just does not uh, match up well with the internet. You know, like that activity and that access on the same machine that you use to write, um, it's it's dangerous. And I think also the, uh, I know personally, like that using the internet repetitively day after day after day, hour after hour, uh, as I still do, you know, it's doing something neurologically to me, you know, like fundamentally. Um, and I just wonder what, you know, and I, I definitely can feel it. And I think a lot of people can feel it. Yeah, I think there's something in particular that's damaging about, as much as I love Facebook and Twitter, about this idea of constantly checking to see how people are reacting to something you put up there. Yeah. That's even like more damaging than just sort of like it used to be surfing the net and checking your email all the time. Like there's something, there's something that's sort of like deeply narcissistic, whether you mean it to be or not about like how many people like this, who shared this, who retweeted this, you know? And there's like, also like, there's a, you know, they've done studies on this. I want to say that like, you get like a dopamine shot, like when you get an email, you know, or you get a text message or like somebody likes something on Facebook or someone like stars your tweet or whatever, like all that stuff gives you like a, a real like shot of like, you know, good brain chemistry, you know, however fleeting it is. And I think that becomes addictive. And I, I catch myself, like die, like I call it diving into my phone. Like when I'm sitting, mm-hmm. I'm sitting at the dinner table with my daughter or something like that. And it's just like, what am I doing? Like, why am I 
this thing feels like a, an albatross sometimes, you know? Well, I, don't, I didn't get a cell phone until like three years ago. I avoided it for a really, really long time, and I still don't have a smartphone. And my wife keeps like trying to, I'll get it for you as a gift. And I'm, I, there's just something, uh, I, I'm really trying to resist that like as long as I can. Like I know I'm going to have one eventually, but. Well, what, what kind of, what kind of, you have a dumb phone, I guess. I've got a dumb phone. Okay. I so, mean, I can, t- I can text and get calls and that's it. I can't surf the net on it. See, that's what I think I want. What kind of phone are you, are you packing? <laughs> it's just like an old, it's like an old uh, Blackberry. I mean, it's basically, I went to like one of these kiosks in the mall. And like they were selling them super cheap because it was like a you know last year's model of BlackBerry and nobody even wants this year's model of BlackBerry, so it was super cheap and I got like you know a small plan and I'm like okay I can text I can get calls that's it if people want to you know email or anything like that I have to do on a computer I have to set aside time for that. Wow. And that's been helpful. One, I mean one thing in terms of creatively that's been helpful in terms of writing and sort of trying to unplug has been going to a bunch of artist colonies for a couple of weeks a year. Okay, so you break away. Do you have children? No, no, okay. I don't. Okay, I was going to say that's that sounds great until I think of like my kid and I'm like I don't know if I can go away, you know. And yeah, I mean that's I mean yeah, I have a lot of friends who have kids who like unless the kids are older or unless they're only going for like seven days or unless their spouse is like super you know super on it um, or has like you know the in-laws coming to help out or something like it's it's very difficult. But I've found. I mean, I guess I would encourage you to even, you know, to see if you can make it happen for like a week or two, because I've found that like two weeks at an artist colony, I can get almost like five to six months worth of work done. Jesus. I mean, it's really like that. For me, it's been like that transformative. And it's great, especially for creating new drafts of stuff, because I can chip away at stuff and revise stuff when I'm at home, even being bombarded by modern life. But it's really hard to sort of sink into like a new story and, and, and get it out in any sort of way that's anything other than surface for me, unless I can really unplug and do that. Right. So wh- where have you been? Which artist colonies have you been to? I've been, the one I've been to the most is this place in Virginia called the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. Um, and it's in this, like, it's in horse country, like in the middle of nowhere and really, really nice. Um, like Southern Virginia? It's uh, it's like central Virginia. It's like 20 minutes north of Lynchburg. It's uh, like 45 minutes from Charlottesville, like sort of okay. west of Charlottesville. Okay, yeah, it's uh, pretty. It's really pretty. It's really remote. Um, it's wonderful. It's really wonderful. And I've been to McDowell once and this place in Georgia that's really nice called the Hambridge Center. Um, and those have all been just really, really wonderful experiences. So, and what do you what do you do? You just you unplug. You have like a cell, essentially, like a, a monkish like room with a table, and you sit down. You wake up in the morning and you caffeinate, and you just go. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit different at, at each place. Like, for instance, um, at the Virginia place, like there's basically this sort of like ski lodge type building where there are 20 people there at a time, and it's artists, musicians, um, composers. And you have your own room you sleep in, and then you walk, like there's a five-minute walk through this, you know, beautiful pasture to this spot where everyone has sort of their own, um, their own room to work in, their own studio. And yeah, you just go there and work. Um, at the Hambridge Center where I was, you literally, they give you your own house, and your house is completely separated from everyone else. So it's kind of nice. You wake up, and just there you are, and you do, you know, your house is also your studio that you work in. Oh my God. That sounds amazing. It's, it's really great. There's something, the amount of momentum that you get going 
when you don't have those sort of interruptions and the fact that you can just sort of like wake up with the work and go right into it, there's so much for me sort of like setup, mental setup and takedown time to be creative that I'm not even aware of. Right. Like all the warm up, like the emailing and the checking the internet and the reading the news and then like Totally, yeah. I mean and even sometimes it's just like opening the document and like, you know, scrolling through and staring at it for forty minutes before, you know, changing a word here or there and sort of feeling like I'm working even though I'm not and Right, right. You know, all of that like I didn't realize like how much of that was sort of ingrained in my process and it's really great to be able to strip that away and realize how much it just sort of, for me, like the um, the words and the story and whatever, like you're just able to sort of summon them so much easier after a couple of days at one of these places. Wow. Well, maybe maybe someday I'll try it out. It sounds great. And so when you're in Charlotte in your, uh, in your like uh, everyday life, how do you work? Like how do you get the creative work done? Do you, do you do it every day? Are you up in the morning? Are you late at night? Like how does it go for you? There's no, there's no one set schedule. I work a ton of different freelance jobs, so I'm always like over the course of the day work, wearing a bunch of different hats, and it sort of depends like where I'm at in the process. Like if I'm, if I'm really, if things are going really, really well, and I'm sort of feeling this urgency, sometimes I can even arrange my schedule so there's maybe three days where I'm mostly just working all day. But then there are a lot of days where like I'm like you know, just opening the document and looking at it and changing a few words and just trying to stay in touch with it. Um, there's certain times where um, I tend to work a lot better in the evening and at night than I do in the morning. Um, I'm not really a morning person, so that tends to be when more of the work gets done. Um, but I try and I try and be I try and carve out time during the day, during the middle of the day, if I can. But it, it really it really just depends. Wow. Well, I don't, I don't have a routine schedule and I, and I, I and it's, that's mostly been okay. Well, whatever you're doing, it seems to be working. Don DeLillo likes it. So <laughs> you, can't, you can't argue with that, right? <laughs> um, yeah, that was a, yeah, yeah. That's a good start. I mean, in your fiction career anyway. And, uh, I guess like the last question I would ask you, because you have these varied interests, you know, the jazz website, you've done theater. Now you've published a book. Um, with a really good press, with like you know uh, some significant authors giving you uh, their praise, like do you do you see the road forward being uh, books exclusively, or do you think that you're going to continue to do theater and books, and do you ever see yourself getting into movies? It seems like you have like all these varied interests. I'm curious to know like which you know which things you want to do. I mean, for me, books have always been the main thing. I mean, the theater sort of. Um was more public and visible for a long time while I was sort of getting my writing chops up and sort of feeling like I had something that was worthwhile to be shared. But I, but I always sort of felt as I always sort of felt the writing, um, the fiction was primary and I, and I still feel that way. I really love doing the theater. Um, but one of the things I love about the theater is I love the people I collaborate with. It's sort of like being in a really great band. Like I love playing in that band more than I love the theater and the abstract, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, so, I mean, I really, I mean, I love, I love film. Um, and if some doors were to open that made it possible to sort of explore that, I would love to do that. I'm not, I don't see myself going out of my way a huge amount to try and make that happen. That's not really sort of my, my goal or my dream. My dream is to keep working on the fiction and I'm, I'm pretty close to being uh, having a draft of another book done already. So, okay, I was going to ask you. So you've got another thing in the in the uh, in the works. Yeah, I mean, this book took such a long time, but I felt like 
I felt like it really sort of uncorked um, something in me. Like I have, I have notes for another couple of books after this. Even like I don't know that inevitably, I don't know that I'll end up writing those books, or maybe those books won't work out. But I feel like uh, I feel like I'm in a good place creatively, and I feel like there's a lot of material that I'm excited to at least try and explore. Well, I wish you the best of luck with it. You're off to a good start, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. This has been fun. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Thank you. Okay, everybody, there you go. That is Jeff Jackson. Go get his novel. It's called Mira Corpora, and it is available now from $2 Radio. You can find Jeff online over at Twitter, where his handle is at Death of Lit. And uh, be sure to check out $2RRadio.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. And, uh, hey, don't forget to go get the app, the free official Other People app. It is available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It is the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes, and you can also access the full archives and premium content all via the app. So please go get that if you haven't done so already. The app itself is free. Uh, so, the weekend. Uh, the weekend was good. I went out of town. I went to the Midwest. Uh, we visited uh, my in-laws. We were in Minneapolis. And I went to the Mall of America for the first time. So, that happened. And I should tell you that uh, the Mall of America is truly enormous. It was bigger in scale than uh, I, I anticipated, and, and I was anticipating uh, something huge. It is a monstrous hellscape <laughs> of American consumerism that one cannot uh, properly describe in words. It has to be experienced. You know, there, there are roller coasters inside of this thing. My daughter and I rode a Ferris wheel together inside the mall. And uh, we ate the most disgusting chipotle I've ever eaten. Please remember that Mar uh, the Marquis de Sade wrote 120 Days of Sodom on a single continuous 45-foot roll of paper. And that Isaac Babel was executed in a Moscow prison cellar. That is it for now. Thanks for being here, you guys. Thanks to Jeff Jackson. Go get Mira Corpora. Uh, I, shall, uh, I shall return soon with another episode. Uh, I'm going to have another episode in public soon if you know what I mean <laughs>